Hello and welcome to another week here at Angel Insights, the show brought to you by Syndicate Room that dives inside the world of early stage investing to reveal the tips, tactics and strategies from the investors themselves. And joining me today, I'm thrilled to welcome Dominic Wilson, managing partner at Pi Labs, founded on the thesis of becoming the centre of the property innovation ecosystem, creating scalable businesses that will disrupt the property sector. And as for Dominic himself, he's got a wide background in private equity real estate, having worked with both AEW. Europe and Savills Investment Management and has transacted over 3 billion euros of deals across Europe. You can also find further resources on the show and investing articles on the site at syndicateroom.com. But enough from me, so it's now time to welcome Dominic Wilson, Managing Partner at Pi Labs. Dominic, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on Angel Insights. Thank you so much for joining me today. No, my pleasure, Harry. Thanks for having me. Now, I'd love to start by discussing how you made your way into the world of early stage investing and, and where you are today with Pi Labs. Sure. Um, as as with most things, um, it was sort of a bit of uh, happenstance. I actually have a background in uh, private equity uh, real estate, so I've actually spent most of my career sort of investing in real estate, which is very closely similar to obviously what PyLabs does, albeit PyLabs on the tech side and we invest in companies. But most recently, I was backing small entrepreneurial uh, residential developers in the UK with, uh, with with sort of debt through a debt platform I was doing at a, at a previous group. So I had some experience in, in researching, underwriting, and kind of vetting management teams and, and, and their business plans. And I knew the chairman here at PyLabs for I think, about six years and then this opportunity came up to to come on board as a GP and, and sort of grow the, the, the platform and, and, and grow our presence both domestically and internationally. And I started looking into tech and, and saw that it was pretty absent from, from the real estate sector relative to other verticals. But that represents a good opportunity. And I and I like sort of small, you know, nimble entrepreneurial teams and which is exactly what we have here. So um you know, I, I sort of jumped at it. Why, why do you think there's been such little innovation in the property tech space? What's the kind of driver behind this antiquated system? Uh, it, there's a number of reasons, really. I mean, I think one, you know, if you look at you know real estate, real estate returns and what drives the real estate industry overall, it's a, you know, it's obviously an asset-based industry, right? Which is just sort of bricks and mortar. And in most cases, I mean, there was a, there was a blip in sort of the GFC, sort of 2008, 2009. But in most cases, those to perform really well, uh, particularly if you're in a place like London, where frankly you can just sit on your hands and you know your holdings will just grow ten percent year on year. Um, there's there's a little need therefore to innovate. Whereas if you compare that to, for example, um, you know, fintech, where you've got you know the incumbents, the large banks facing a lot of regulatory change, that's that, that's invited a lot of you know new challenger opportunities to to threaten the status quo. Having said that. I think what we're now seeing is post GFC, you know, certainly with Brexit, there's a new normal on the real estate landscape, and people are having to work a lot harder to generate those those returns from their assets. And ultimately, you know, technology is going to be at the forefront of of, what, of the tools that they use in order to enhance those returns. And that's kind of why we're seeing a massive leap forward on the innovation front in the last 18 months. I'm intrigued though, why, why do you think now is then the time for for innovation in property tech? Uh, if we can sit on our hands and get 10% year on year, what, why now? Is it kind of new enabling technologies? Is it kind of the rise of availability of data? What is it to you that lends to this innovative surge? 
a combination of things. I mean, I think first of all, the the era of sitting on your hands and getting ten percent year year on year returns is over. You know, you're now having to be more creative in in how you you outperform the market. That's point number one. So, so what are the what are what are the, the methodologies that you can use in, in order to in order to, to reach that goal? Secondly, I think there's been you know, there have been a number of big successes on 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 the real estate prop tech side. So, you know, in the UK, you kind of got Zoopla, uh, Right Move, you know, companies that have done reasonably well, like appear here. The US has had Zillow. Obviously, Airbnb is probably like the most you know. Well-known and, and kind of glamorous of the, of the prop tech success stories, and I think that's that in turn is 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 woken people up to the value of um, the consumer in a way that perhaps they didn't otherwise you know think about. You know, people used to think about consumers from a real estate perspective in a very kind of binary binary fashion. And I've actually just written an article about this where it was focused on just as you know you, you are a buyer of a property or a seller of a property or you are a tech potential uh, uh, tenant or, you know, whereas now you are seen as a, a, a consumer within a home, there's, you know, there's a lot of big data around that, your consumer patterns, your insurance patterns, your lending, your spending habits, all of that now is, is becoming more transparent and that is monetizable and in turn is more valuable. So that has created, you know, companies on the one hand who are looking to, you know, bring those data sets together and obviously investors and users and consumers or sort of you know, customers or other who, who, who want access to those data sets and therefore want to pay for it. And that therefore is a marketplace being formed. I, I want to discuss investor specialization now because as, we, as we've kind of figured, Pi Labs is very much focused on property tech. So what do you think are the inherent benefits of having such investor specialization for you? You know, the rationale for us is, is, is quite simple. When we when we decided to do this, there wasn't really a there wasn't a property tech kind of investor specialist in existence. So we thought that was potentially a gap in the market. I think real estate as a as a sector in terms of product fit and you know, applicability of technologies is quite a hard sector to underwrite, right? In terms of um, if you compare it to a more consumer focused e commerce based. Um, type offering, so you know if you look at sort of fast tech or um, you know you can maybe some elements of fintech and whatever else. And we all have real estate backgrounds, so we understand the markets extremely well. You know, I think having a laser focus on on that market enables us to to, to better vet the opportunities that we see. And certainly, you know, the data that we have to date supports that thesis. You know, in terms of our metrics and and, and the success of the companies that we've invested in, where we are. You know, narrow, I guess, on a vertical basis. And actually, prop tech is, is, is wider than people, most people think. So, you know, it, it touches sort of fintech, insurance tech, hospitality, hotels, construction, you know, commercial, residential, big data. But where we're narrow in that sense, we're quite geographically agnostic, which is sort of the reverse of, the, of most models, right? Most models are set, sort of sector vertical agnostic, but geographically focused. And so we decided to be very sector focused, but um, have, a, have, a, have a wider global appeal. Do you think it matters then in terms of proximity to your investments with regards to value add and strategic yeah, well, input? 
Yeah, I think it definitely does. We, to the way, I mean, look, we're, the, our, our, the way we sort of look at it is we're very comfortable to invest overseas, providing that we're comfortable with the, with the structuring and rules that are in place. What tends to happen is that we see quite a lot of overseas businesses who have developed some traction in the local market but want to come to London. And the reason they want to come to London is because London is, you know, arguably, and you know, hopefully still is after last week, uh, the global capital in terms of real estate. Um, I think every major player or real estate you know, operates out of London and therefore companies tend to come here. So, and the, we, we therefore still have that degree of proximity. But we're seeing, for example, an awful lot of deal flow out of Southeast Asia. And as a result of that, and to you know, address your point directly, Harry, about proximity, we, we do, we're going to open an office in Singapore next year to, to better serve that that pipeline mm-hmm, absolutely and on back on the investor specialization there, well, are there any kind of inherent cons that you feel from being so focused on one particular vertical well yeah i guess so i mean on the one hand you know we see i've seen i've seen like a, i've seen quite a few fantastic opportunities where you know people have come to us you know not thinking that they're or not, not realizing that we're that we're sort of prop tech specialists so a way you looked at an idea and maybe it has like a, you know, a very loose kind of connection to, to real estate, but it's actually a great business. And unfortunately, you have to pass it on to someone else, um, which is always a bit painful. But um, so, yeah, so you, obviously you, you, you miss out on, on, on certain opportunities. I mean, we're never going to do the next, you know, something like Uber or, or whatever it is or some, you know, some, some, some fantastic kind of biotech deal we you know we, we we won't we won't be able to participate in that i have to say from a deal flow perspective we you know we are absolutely you know it, it's immense and we're absolutely inundated so i think one would think there's a, that you'd have a shortage of opportunities but we have found that to be absolutely the opposite and in fact most people most companies who are coming to us are coming to us because we're specialized and that's what they really value. You said it's painful passing on opportunities. I'm intrigued at how you deal with the FOMO of being an investor. How does that affect you? Look, I'm, I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty sanguine about investments. To be honest with you, um, my dad always uh, taught me, you know, always had an expression for sort of take your profits and cry. Um, so, look, we. We, we can't back every every great company, right? I mean, you know, we, we, we don't have limitless funds and nor do we have a crystal ball. So um, for sure, we're going to miss uh, miss out on great opportunities. The, you know, the, 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 the secret of our success to date and the secret of our success in the future will be that we need to back, you know, good companies and we pass on, basically, and making sure that we get those ratios right. If we... If we um, if we miss a great opportunity, that might be for a very good reason, right? I mean, we we we've passed on things that we that we like a lot that have been directly within our domain, and that might be because we have a portfolio management you know issue to consider. We might already have a company that's in that sector. We might um, we might feel strategically in terms of maybe some of our investors uh, or maybe the location that it's perhaps not the best thing for us to do at that moment in time. There, there's a number of different reasons that go into an investment decision that we make. And we make that as a committee and as a team. And What's your investment decision-making process like? It's pretty quick. It's pretty linear. I mean, look, I run the... I run the platform here, and I and I have sort of overall oversight of all the investment activity. And what tends to happen is we our process is normally we meet with a company, 
if we like it, we, we sort of go to a second round and we get more information on financials and everything else. We like that. And once we've gone through their numbers and everything else, we then do an on-site at their place sort of due diligence session where we sort of spend two to three hours with them going through things a little bit more nitty-gritty. And normally at the end of that process, um, we're in a position to say, yes, it's something we want to take forward or no. And there's probably like a few other you know, bits of DD and questioning, but generally what happens then is that we just, you know, we do a, a paper convening our investment committee and then we discuss it and, and it normally gets it normally gets approved. I mean we don't normally take things to investment committee, you know, blind. So we, we, we obviously know most of them well. We have two external venture capital firms on our on our committee, uh, members from venture capital firms on our committee in terms of local global index ventures, and we're in close contact with them regularly. They're, they're big supporters of ours, and 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 that's how it works, really. I'm intrigued as to kind of check size now, and your strategy on check size and the rigidity towards it at this stage of investing. So, so how much rigidity rigidity do you place towards the check size, and does it vary excessively? I don't think we have. We have rigidity on the size of the overall funding round that we'll participate in. You know, our strategy is that we're, you know, we're effectively a seed investor. So we'll do seed, sort of seed two, seed three, and series A, but we only follow one at series A. So we wouldn't do a first time, first level time investment at series A. And we define series A, just to be clear, as $5 million, right? And then some people define it differently. So effectively, that means that we're looking at anything from £250,000 to probably £2.5 million in terms of, and that's a pretty rigid frame um, according to our, our mandate. I mean, I'm defining series A as $5 million, which is more or less £3 million, right? So effectively, as a first-time seed investment, we would look at anything below that threshold. So let's say £2.5 million to £250,000, that's the spectrum. That 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 is pretty predetermined and pretty set. But there's a great deal of flexibility within that, clearly. Then in terms of the actual size of the check that we write, our, our thesis is we're happy to lead, but we don't insist on it. So we're equally happy not to. We, want to, we simply want to take a meaningful part of the round. And by that, we mean normally sort of 25 to 40, 50% of the round. So on average, what that means, I think, is our check size is somewhere between 100 and 750. And do you like to take a board seat with that investment? Uh, we don't ask for that at all, no. So we're quite different to other investors in that respect. There's some investors sort of you know, stipulate board seats, observer seats, and everything else. Um, we are of the view that it should be the founders and the, and the, and the team that determine who goes on their board, you know, who's their lead, and everything else. We, what we do kind of insist on is that the board is run properly, and there is an external influence on the board to make sure that you know certain investor consent matters are you know are covered off. But ultimately, we believe that we spend a lot of time due diligence and and vetting a management team. And if we decide to back it, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to back it rather than sort of sit on their shoulders and. and you know, overlook everything that needs to be done. That's just not our style. So we do get asked a lot to go on boards, conversely, and we're happy to consider that, um, provided that, you know, we can avoid conflicts and we feel that we have the right time and resource to, to, to make it work for everyone concerned. Mm-hmm. And a last question before we dive into a quick fire, in regards to kind of co-investment opportunities and co-investors in the ecosystem. So how have you found the angel and the seed funding environment in London in terms of co-investment opportunities? It's pretty good. Um, it's very good, actually. Um, I mean, obviously, you've got the tax benefits for, for angels here, um, which means there's a great deal of, of angel you know, capital uh, looking for looking for deal flow. We've had a lot of we've had a lot of strong angel networks 
invest into our companies. We've had co-investment opportunities or people coming alongside us from the likes of sort of you know, Landmark, which is DMGI's investment vehicle. You know, Local Globe has followed on 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 some of our on some of our investments. Seed Camp, um, and some other other big angel networks like Clearly So and Mustard Seed. I think the network here is very strong and, and getting better. There's a there's a there's a maturing of the market seed at the moment. I think you're bringing the 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 angel money alongside the VC money. It's not always an easy process because the you know, the angels look at things through a slightly different lens. I mean, they're they're, they're largely looking at it through a through a tax uh, rebate type process. So effectively, they're getting they're buying in at the company at half the price that we're buying in at. In most cases, or, or you know, or a third of the price off, and so obviously they 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 underwrite it slightly differently to how we do when it comes to that valuation and, and and risk and everything else. So that can sometimes be uh, a you know, a point of contention in terms of how you then set the valuation and, and set the funding around going forwards. But there's a lot of support, and I think everyone is 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 very keen to see these companies succeed, which is which is great. And I'd love to dive into a quick fire round with you now. So I say, yeah, sure. yeah, go for it. So sixty seconds per answer. So let's start with, uh, you know, you mentioned tax reliefs. Is this dumb money? And is dumb money a good thing? It is uh, on, on, on balance. Yes, it is dumb money, and yes, dumb money is a good thing. So the, every every investor round needs needs smart money, but you don't need a hundred percent of your round to be smart money. So having some dumb money in there that's just going to give you money and let you get on with it is is a good thing. Yeah. The effect of Brexit. What's going to be, uh, obviously it's a, a guessing game now, but how have you seen it play out so far? I don't, I think it's all a little bit too raw. I think, I, I seriously doubt we're actually going to end up leaving the EU in any meaningful form, personally. Really? I can't see, I, I can't see how that's going to be voted through Parliament. And, and nor the terms, the terms on which we're going to leave are, are haven't been negotiated or unknown. So they start to present you know, a package to Parliament to be voted down to repeal the European kind of Communities Act of 72. And I, you know, that's, if 95% of MPs are in favour of staying, then that obviously raises serious questions about whether that would actually get voted through, right? So I think the, the shockwaves from the last few days have been, you know, significant. I think from a property perspective and from what we do, it's probably a good thing. And the reason for that is, you know, venture is at, the, is at the sharp end of the stick as far as risk is concerned. So yes, we're we're, we're sort of high risk investors with very high risk, uh, high high rewards and high returns. But if you're you know if you go to the opposite end of the spectrum, which is your safe haven assets of equities and bonds, but if you look at the volatility in those markets, um, they're obviously not looking so secure. So actually, why not take the risk with the guys who are going to give you the, the greater returns as opposed to the guys who are just going to perhaps lose lose a lot of money or just generate sort of five ten percent return. And lastly, coming back to what we were talking about before. This is definitely going to impact property companies, right, in terms of like how their asset price growth and, and their performance. So they're going to need innovation and technology more than, more than they ever have. And then what's the biggest challenge for you in your day-to-day role? That we're a fund and we're an investor and we, and we have a lot of great momentum and, and great ambitions. So for us, it's matching the capital requirements to the, you know, the deal pipeline that we have. Um, we, we have far more, more deals that we, that we want to invest in than, than capital that we have to invest, which is actually quite a nice problem to have. It's better that than the other way around. You know, we're looking to capitalize ourselves better in every respect and, and, and to really make sure that we take advantage, full advantage of this sort of first mover position that we found ourselves in. So um, that's one. We are very fast and we're very nimble and we, and we implement extremely quickly, which is great. 
um, but some of our kind of counterparts, you know, certainly in the real estate industry, as we alluded to before, perhaps are not so quick. So we're so managing those two processes in terms of the speed at which we get things done and the speed at which they move is perhaps can be a little bit frustrating. But we're making inroads on that front. And then I want to finish on your most recent investment and why you said yes. Our most recent investment um, was an investment uh, with one of the lead investors into Plantific, uh, which is a home services, home improvement marketplace. The reason we said yes is because it was an exceptionally strong management team. And that's normally the, the, the catalyst for most of our investments, to be fair. Two, they had some incredible partnerships um, with the likes of Zoopla and a few others that I can't really name at the moment. Three, they, their quality of product and their speed of product development was far ahead of anything else in the competition. And they sort of overcome problems that, that their competitors had, had traditionally struggled with. It was one of those deals that was kind of a no-brainer. I mean, it wasn't a no-brainer, but you know, we... Everything we 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 looked at um, came up very very well, and, that, and from a referencing point of view, I, I don't think I've ever had a, a better set of references, uh, and we referenced them quite heavily. You know, they're, they're just they're just a very very strong team, and very you know kind of very clearly focused on on execution, which is something that we that we value quite highly. Well, Dominic, thank you so much for giving up the time today to come on the show, and it's so fantastic to hear more about Pi Labs. Uh, brilliant, Harry. Thank you for having me. And a huge hand to Dominic for giving up his time today to be on the show. It really was fantastic to hear his journey establishing Pi Labs. And if you'd like to see more from us, then you can follow us on at Syndicate Room on Twitter, or you can head over to the site at www.syndicateroom.com, where there's the e-learning academy for investors, where there's a whole host of articles and podcast resources for you to check out. As always, we so appreciate you tuning in and look very forward to bringing you next week's episode on Wednesday.